So, Namaste. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for this wonderful privilege and opportunity to study the Gita together. Actually, it has been there in my mind at some point to take up regular uh, classes or sharing on the Gita. I didn't know how it will materialize and it happens to materialize in this way. So, it's wonderful. So, um, before we begin, uh, just the plan would be that we'll have it twice a month, that's what. And so, one chapter every time. That would be the basic plan. And we will, as we go through, we will see how it um, compares with the Gita uh, that Sri Krishna gave to Arjuna. Essentially, it's the same thing. All the chapters, it's absolutely the same thing, except that one, Sri Krishna is in a on the battlefield, so there are limitations. It's a, Shubindu makes it very clear that it is not something which should be seen just as a symbol. It is an actual battle on which there is a limitation of time and there are circumstances and situations which suddenly trigger a series of crises and a set of questions in the mind of Arjun. It's not a philosophical treatise alone, though there is so much philosophy that one can draw from it, metaphysical thinking, but it's a book of practical action. How do we make choices? How do we resolve conflicts? How do we deal with ever-changing life situations? Most of them which land up, land us in some kind of a battle, some kind of a conflict. So Gita is a book of practical spirituality. Now, apart from that, there are many other unique things about the Gita. And I would suggest that as a companion volume, one should read Sri um, introduction to the Gita, which is originally in Bengali, part of Bengali writings. It's called Gitar Bhumika, but it's available in English as well as Hindi. So these, those chapters set a note to what the Gita is about. Here also we'll see the same thing, but in very different way. So, uh, there are many unique things about the Gita. The first is, it is given in the setting of the battle. And not just an ordinary battle, but a battle which is fratricidal war, which is going to lead eventually to the loss of some few million lives. That's the magnitude of the war. It is going to lead to the loss of most of the valiant warriors who were present at the, that point of time. And at the center of the battle, we see on one side, Sri Krishna, who is the charioteer of Arjuna. And on the other side, there is Arjun, who is the human instrument. And what is he called upon? He is called upon to undertake this war, which is going to lead to so much of destruction and death. So it's a very different setting. It is not given in the quiet hermitage, <laughs> the way we are talking about the Gita today. It's in grim earnest in the battlefield. So there's something very unique about the Gita. Second is that its form is not thus God said, thus God said, thus God said, therefore do it. It evolves through a series of question and answers. This format is very much suitable to our modern times. We don't want just to receive a scripture which says, do this, don't do this. In fact, very frankly, Gita doesn't say, do this and don't do this. So, though it is a book of practical action, it never says, do this action and don't do this action. 
except in the beginning it says arjun you must fight the war and then it proceeds on a series of logical arguments what it does say and insist is what should be our inner state when we act what should be our motives which is the key of action so we give too much importance to outer action and shobindra in essays on the gita at one place he will say action and events have no importance in themselves but for the idea force they represent the idea which is behind the action and the force which is there to accomplish it so we often uh, think for instance we may have this idea that all war is bad but if we look at the gita it doesn't say so and that's why we see in shurbindo during the second world war how he even sent some of his own disciples to join the war on the side of the allies and people didn't understand why he is doing this and at the same time shurbindo says very clearly when someone asks that sir the new world is coming the war has ended so when the second world war ended he was asked that will the war has ended sign of a new world so shubindra says the new world is more likely to come through the doors of war which is very difficult for human mind to understand and he will explain all this he will explain why war at micro level at major levels it becomes sometimes necessary and even inevitable so here we have the third aspect of the gita that many people who may not be aware or may be aware that what is the background why this war becomes inevitable it's not like war is the first choice for shri krishna war is not the first choice even there has been deceit with the pandavas they have gone to the forest uh, dethroned from their kingdom which they had literally had to request for though it was their right and yet they had to request for it and then they lose it over a deceitful game of dice but shri krishna doesn't tell them come let's fight and overthrow the kauravas and snatch the kingdom he doesn't say that he tells them go through tapasya go through the preparation go through the training if war is thrust upon you so you will be equipped to fight then they come back duryodhan refuses to give the kingdom or even a portion of it shri krishna himself goes as the shanti doot and his last demand is give us only five villages out of your huge kingdom and all the pandavas each pandav one village and that's enough we don't quarrel over piece of land but duryodhan refuses then shri krishna shows him that look here if you refuse this is god's will at this point of time and yet duryodhan refuses so this war is literally thrust upon the pandava so we should not take it that gita is all about take a gun and start you know claiming your kingdom it's not a quarrel over land it is a quarrel over dharma the right thing to do the will of the divine and at that point of time from every standard yudhishthir should have been the king one he is the eldest and shubhendra explains all this in his earlier writings he was the eldest and uh, of among the kurus he was also dharmanist he was the right person to be at the helm of affairs and therefore what shri krishna wanted what god's will was that this should be governed by a deeper 
inner higher law of dharma that's what always in any group organization be it a small organization be it a larger organization be it a city nation ultimately it's about the governance by truth and dharma but this dharma is not about right and wrong written in two sides of a column and here again we'll see that the gita explains to us what dharma is in all its intricacies and details dharma is not a set of scriptural rules or moral rules or social rules or religious rules dharma itself evolves as we evolve and dharma reveals itself in the heart of every creature that's where the seat of dharma is dharma is not a book written do's and don'ts so this is the third very beautiful thing about the gita it trains us to discern what is dharma and what is adharma and that's where we see shri krishna's advent at the time of you know when there is dharma siglani so this is the third important aspect of the gita second is questions the setting the questions question answer format and the third is dharma and adharma which is the main thing fourth why gita has been given to arjuna what is its importance to all of us so it is symbolic here comes the symbol just like in savitri and satyavan we can look at it as a story which took place in far back times or we can look at ramayana as a story which has no relevance now there are people who look at it like that but the relevance lies in the typical nature of the story it touches upon what human nature is and has been and how to help this human nature transcend its humanity towards a divine becoming so savitri and satyavan become a story of the divine mother and the human soul at one level at another level the story of conjugal love lifting itself toward the heights of divine love so this story becomes typically of shri krishna as the divine within man the imminent divine and arjun is all of us potential arjun of course <laughs> so this is the story about us our story krishna is the divine within man that's how the mother had understood and the gita she instantly understood that it's about shri krishna is the imminent divine that's how shri krishna is and of course he is the godhead on the battlefield of kurukshetra we'll come to that and this krishna is revealing truths to arjun who is us confused conflicted um, in all kinds of situations navigating through the pathways of life we don't know what to do we don't know what is the right thing to do we don't know how to do it and yet this is the path given to us to evolve into a greater godhead so the fifth interesting thing about the gita which shrivinda will remind us and it starts with the first chapter is that we want to avoid conflicts <laughs> this is the standard way that all slightly sensitive human beings operate there are two kinds of human beings one who love conflict they love to bulldoze they love to challenge they love to deny every kind of thing to someone else and the others who avoid conflict so it gives a field way to one kind of humanity <laughs> whereas what is to be done what is the right thing to do should we always avoid conflict is it a good thing to do or the conflict itself is a door towards a greater evolution so the gita is about starts with a crisis and takes us to evolution this is the first fifth very interesting point about the gita crisis to liberation or crisis to evolution sixth is the relation between god and man 
So everywhere we see God is a judge sitting out there. Or he is a guru whom we worship. But here, the divine comes as the charioteer. He comes as a counselor. He comes as a guide. He comes as a mentor. He comes as a savior. So many things he does toward Arjuna. But very interestingly, he comes as a friend. His counseling is not just a counseling of a counselor, but as a friend. So this idea of God as a friend is something very beautiful about this relationship because to a friend we can ask many things and anything. And that's how Arjun raises doubts, he raises questions, he asks him things which uh, he even challenges him that why are you asking me, you are confusing me, you are telling me that jnana is greater then karma, then you are asking me to fight this battle, you are speaking of sannyas, why are you speaking this double language? So this is something very beautiful that here divine comes as a friend, a mentor, a counsellor. So it changes the way we relate with the divine. Divine is not just up there, he is with us on the battlefield, he is the charioteer provided we give the reins to him. And uh, the last and important thing which we see about the Gita is how human calculations Ordinarily we calculate and we try to project into the future How human calculations actually come to naught And the Gita starts with this calculation which Duryodhan makes Just as Arjun has asked one day before the battle or on the day of battle morning He says, Keshav, take me into the middle of the battlefield Let me see who are these warriors who have stood up against me He is a hero Actually, he has all the most dangerous weapons in his armory. There is a little anecdote before the Gita starts. Yudhishthir says, you know, we are going to depend on you, Arjun and Bhim. But mainly on you, Arjun. Tell me one thing. Bhishma has this arrow. When Bhishma was asked, how many days will it take you to finish the Pandava army? He said, one day. Dronacharya, he says, few days. So, he is hearing all those news which are coming from all over. He says, Arjun, how many days will it take you? He says, actually bro, I can do it in one moment. Because he has the deadliest weapon called Pashupat Astra. It is Shiva's weapon. It is more potent than any weapon on earth at that point of time. Pashupat Astra. Shiva is the great destroyer. And he says, with this weapon... If I wish the entire army could be destroyed in just one moment. And yet, look at the restraint, Arjun never uses it. In fact, he doesn't use any of the celestial weapons except on one occasion. And that to a very mild celestial weapon at Krishna's command. So having strength, having power is one thing. To restrain and control it is quite another thing. That's the greatness of Arjun. And he's a great warrior. He has been trained to reach this point. That's how one becomes an instrument of God. He is the only one available in that entire army, both sides, who can fire accurately in the dark. There have been great warriors in the past who could fire in by hearing the sound. But Arjuna had methodically trained himself to fight in the dark, even if there is, and of course without the infrared goggles. He could shoot accurately in the dark, pitch dark, by he had his own ways of seeing into the He had conquered sleep. That's why we'll see he is described in different ways. One of them is Gudakesh. 
Gudakesh is one who has conquered sleep. So he could fight day and night if he wished to. It didn't mean he didn't sleep, conquered. If he wished, he could fight it at night. He is also spoken as Parantapa, one whom the foes, the enemies, they will run away seeing him. Parantapa. So this is Arjuna. There is a preparation that one becomes ready for becoming an instrument of God. So we all want to become in some way <laughs> instrument of God, but what it means to become an instrument of God, we can see in the life of Arjun and Sri Krishna. So this is the background and with that we can enter into the first chapter of the Gita. So the first six chapters, we can see, essays on the Gita is 24 plus 24, 48 chapters. And the first series is about where we see primarily it's about the Karma Yoga which is the important aspect of the Gita. But the Gita is not only about Karma Yoga, it's a synthesis of Karma, Jnana and Bhakti. So it's also called as Trimarg, the triple path. And why? It, what is its importance? Because we see this tendency towards following one stream of Yoga and specializing in it. At the same time, there have been tendencies in human thought in India to synthesize the different paths. So, Gita is one of those synthesis which synthesizes these three paths, Jnana, Karma and Bhakti. It synthesizes Sankhya and Yoga. It synthesizes life in the world and the spiritual life. All those things which at some point people began to feel cannot be brought together. So, Sri Krishna is a synthetic yoga. Before Sri came up with synthesis of the yoga which takes it one level further. Because in synthesis of yoga there is also synthesis of Vedanta and Tantra. Sri Krishna does not take up Tantra aspect. He does not take up material transformation. He does not take up uh, transformation of the instruments. It was not necessary and man was not ready. Let's put it like that. But whatever he takes up is a great synthesis. And its uh, action is liberating. And last word... Uh, when Shurabindo says that there are four great events in the bat- in in the world's history, the first is the siege of Troy because it brought in the spirit of beauty, and you know many things it brought in subsequently. The siege of Troy, and the second is crucifixion of Christ, who from the cross, Christ from the cross, humanized Europe. That compassion. Stirred in mankind, oh, what are we doing? We are putting people on the cross, nailing them. It awakened in the human heart a compassion as never before. And the third is Sri Krishna's exile from Vrindavan. He leaves Vrindavan, we know, midnight, and he comes, he never returns back actually, because after that he engages in Mathura, then Dwarka, battlefield of Kurukshetra, Dwarka back. So that's Krishna's exile from Vrindavan. That created devotional religion. So if you see the Upanishads and the Vedas, we see Jnana and we also see Karmakanda. But we don't see that kind of devotion that Krishna brings to us. So Krishna's gift to mankind is devotion, bhakti. Because he, were, he went away from Vrindavan, all the gops and gopis, their hearts are filled with bhakti, love and longing. We see a line in Savitri, when dawn withdraws. So what it leaves? It, it leaves in its trays a, 
a worship of a presence and a power. So that's also reminds us one of the reasons why Shurabindu and the mother step into the background. As long as they were there, we all know that people, yes, people had some faith, but the approach was very different. And the mother spoke about it, that in times to come, people will love me as none of you has ever imagined. Is working so true. So it releases the steams of bhakti because human wa- heart wants to contact the divine. It cannot. Because when the divine is accessible to the senses, it is very easy. You can walk up. You can argue. But when the divine is not there, the heart needs so bhakti awakens in the human heart. And the fourth is the colloquy on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And Shurabindu says, it's, it will yet liberate humanity. And the mother adds, its action is not yet over, the action of the Gita. And with the new interpretation given by Shurabindu, that is, S is on the Gita, its action has become manifold. So this is the importance about reading S is on the Gita. And its characteristic action is liberation. And what is that liberation? Frees us from ignorance. Brings clarity. Gives us the right law of action. Recently somebody was asking about a certain line of action. This group is saying this, this group is saying that. So uh, they asked me, I said, you know what? Each group will say their own things. (laughs) What matters is the motive inside which you cannot conceal from God. You can conceal, you can paint beautiful words. That's how Duryodhan has, cons- you know, had said beautiful words. We are fighting, it's a dharma war for us. <laughs> Karna says, yes, yes, injustice has been done to you. Just imagine. <laughs> he has done the injustice, but he, Karna believes Duryodhan is a victim. He also believes that for his friend's sake, he should stand. But the only person who knows the motive in everybody's heart is Sri Krishna. That's what matters. That the divine will should manifest and the motive in the and the intent in the heart of everyone. And that the divine knows and that's what divine catches and fulfills. So the first six chapters here are dedicated only to chapter 1 of the Gita. Which is basically 47 shlokas. Sri Krishna doesn't even start speaking basically here. So... The chapter 1 starts with Arjuna's requesting that please take me, let me see who are these warriors. And when he is taken, on one side there is Duryodhan. He looks at the army of Pandavas and he's, he thinks aloud to all his fellow warriors. He says, oh, I am so lucky, so fortunate. I have with me warriors like Bhishma, Drona, Karna, Bhurishrava, he takes the name of great warriors, Kripacharya, and I myself. And before us, their army is like a zero. This is human calculation. This is how ego looks at life. It calculates. It doesn't bring into account, take into account the factor of the incalculable. What he has missed out is Krishna. But Krishna very quietly has said, I will not fight the war. So there is that little background which Sri has immortalized in one of his aphorisms. And the background is, in aphorism, Sri says, if Krishna be alone and unarmed, 
and against you there are all the forces of the world still you must choose krishna so the choice was given to duryodhan and arjun duryodhan chose first he wanted the army of krishna this is also interesting it is his army but on the other side there is only krishna unarmed and arjun chooses krishna unarmed this is the significance of divine will that's what democracy cannot understand you may have all the people voting in one direction divine will is in quite another direction it will eventually prevail that's how the mother says in a message of 54 no human will can finally prevail against the divine will so what is the choice given to man put yourself deliberately on the side of the divine this is the message that we see in the gita in the beginning as a background arjun says i want you <laughs> fighting i will do <laughs> do i want you i will not fight doesn't matter i want you who better counselor and mentor and just your presence is enough so this is the choice that we all make so the first choice in the gita is arjun has chosen the divine rather than the entire opinions viewpoints and people he has chosen the divine krishna people must have said he is a fool he is too emotional he is sentimental <laughs> that's how people used to call arjun because he was very emotional of all the creatures <laughs> we'll see that so the first chapter is titled as arjuna vishad yoga when he goes in the front in the middle of the battlefield and he sees all these people whom i am called to stand against are my brothers my family my grandfather my teacher my preceptor my mentor i have grown up with them and then he says you know what keshav after all why do we want to win the war so that i can enjoy with my family but here the family will be destroyed i will be given this great dishonor i will earn this of committing this sin of a carnage where i am destroying my own people my own people that's how he describes and along with that even when i win the kingdom i am not going to enjoy this what is this kingdom going to be of any use because there will be no family to enjoy with that's arjuna's vishad but sh- Vishad is despair. It's a state of despair, but it is termed in the Gita as Arjuna Vishad Yoga. Despair can turn into opening a door for yoga, provided instead of going down the hole, sinkhole, instead of getting depressed and more and more despair, we turn towards the divine, like Arjun to Krishna. and tell him i don't understand anything now i am confused i am paralyzed and i surrender myself to you guide me lead me the mother says in one of her uh, conversations toward the end she says that you know when there is confusion all around you don't know what to do you don't know why things are the way they are she says just hold on to the divine turn to the divine all the rest is phantasmagoria it comes in a later conversations one of the last 71 i think a turn to the divine hold on to the divine 
and she arjun does precisely that he turns to arjun, krishna and says tell me what i should do and he submits himself saying shishyasti ham sadhima i am your disciple take me as your disciple teach me lead me carry me and that in one word seals the destiny of arjun so this is the beauty but as i said this first chapter will run into six chapters of essays on the gita because of its importance this chapter is often ignored people talk about gita as a symbol they talk about gita as buddhi yoga they talk about gita as karma yoga but this is important what really is the crisis of arjun because it connects with us so the very first chapter is our demand and need from the gita why do we read the gita at all there are so many scriptures what's special about the gita so shobindo tells us that a scripture is not to be read only to remember it verbatim and speak about it like a parrot that's not what a scripture is meant for that every day i will do gita parayana and then i will show my capacity of memorizing teaching is useful only if we live it and gita gives us all about spiritual living if you take it that we are just reading the gita because we'll remember and no gita is about it's a practical book and it is meant to be to to live second thing he says in every scripture and this is so important in today's time when people fight over scriptures cult sects he says every scripture has two parts there are eternal truths and there are temporal truths eternal truths are fundamental truths they will always remain they will be unchanging there is one reality is an eternal truth but that reality expresses itself in time and space in different ways that's a temporal truth that's why mother says that men have a tendency each avatar is the forerunner of a more perfect future realization but men have a tendency to worship the avatar of the past in opposition to avatar of the future so there have been great masters there have been great truths given to mankind at different ages they were meant for a certain age and for each age for instance in hinduism there was a time when brahmins would put a you know tripundatika vere janeo they were meant to be live on arms there was a time like that you can't do it now <laughs> that was a necessity at one point of time people when they saw a brahmin they said okay he is a learned wise man this they, they didn't carry a um, a biodata this was the biodata i know the i am a learned person you know <laughs> wise man if i curse you will be in danger if i give you a boon it's likely to bear fruit so be careful but now people have misused all these symbols so all these things have no more necessity but the knowledge of the divine which a brahmin was supposed to carry is a necessity now it will always be a necessity it will apply to all ages at one point of time it was meant for a particular group of mankind but today we are living in a collective yoga era of collective yoga anyone who is got the sincerity and the aspiration can so there are temporal things we see it in every religion every scripture there will be things which are temporary things which are eternal and having said that shrivinda says but in the gita there is very little that is temporal shri krishna doesn't say wear a dress like that shri krishna doesn't say wake up in the morning and do five times prayer to me 
Shri Krishna doesn't say the prayer has to be done only facing east or south or north or west or turning to the skies or turning to the ground. Shri Krishna does not say you have to offer this kind of money and this kind of prasadam for me. What a vast universal Catholic teaching. That is why the Gita will have an appeal perennially. Very little. In fact, Shavinda says very little. I try to find what is temporal about Gita. You can't find anything temporal. All the truths, all the things that are described are all about our eternal realities. So let's, with that idea, we'll read just a couple of passages every time. The first line is, The world abounds with scriptures, sacred and profane, with revelations and half-revelations. So all scriptures are not about all. Revelations can be half-revelations. So, because somebody has seen a partially one aspect of God, doesn't mean one has known the ultimate reality. With religions and philosophies, sects and schools and systems, to these the many minds of a half-ripe knowledge or no knowledge at all attach themselves with exclusiveness and passion and will and will have it that this or the other book is alone the eternal word of God. And all others are either impostures or at best imperfectly inspired that this or that philosophy is the last word of the reasoning intellect and other systems are either errors or saved only by such partial truth in them as links them to the one true philosophical cult. It is so relevant today. It looks like hundred years back Shrabindo was forcing what's going to come. So that's not the purpose of his scripture to make us hard, narrow, fanatical, rigid, dogmatic. That's not the purpose. And the Gita will give us nothing of that kind. There is nothing, even this, you know, narrow, rigid, dogmatic about the Gita. You can't turn it into that kind of thing. It is equally true of Sri Aurobindo's teachings. The mother said, there are people who will try to do it, but it will be impossible. You can't turn it into that. So he makes it clear. Now this is, we won't find this in the chapter 1 of the Gita. But this is so important. Even the discoveries of physical science have been elevated into a creed. So true. Cult of science, religion of no religion, ideologies which believe that scientific materialism is the only gospel. So he says they have been raised to that level. And in its name, religion and spirituality banned as ignorance and superstition, philosophy as frippery and moonshine. And to these begotted exclusions and vain wranglings, even the wise have often lent themselves. Misled by some spirit of darkness that has mingled with the light and overshadowed it with some cloud of intellectual egoism or spiritual pride. So it is so true, again relevant, that people have made a cult out of scientific materialism. They say, you, you need as if, if only if a scientist, a physicist testifies to the Gita, will you say, ah, yes, yes, it is very great. It is... His privilege if he has been able to turn to the Gita. So this was the ancient times when people went to the great masters, even the great discoverers, scientists, kings, they would sit at the feet of the master and receive the teaching. That is the meaning of Upanishad, to sit at the feet of the master and receive the knowledge which goes to the heart of things. 
so different from now anybody expressing any kind of opinion. But that's their business. But this also becomes a cult. Mankind seems now indeed inclined to grow a little modester and wiser. We no longer slay our fellows in the name of God's truth, though we do do it still. <laughs> but by and large, at least many religions have understood this. By and large. There are some who are holding on. Sartan Sajuda, if you talk blasphemy. But Shabinda says that is very primitive. Or because their minds differently trained or differently constituted from ours, we are less ready to curse and revile our neighbor because he is wicked or presumptuous enough to differ from us in opinion. We are ready even to admit that truth is everywhere and cannot be our sole monopoly. We are bringing we are beginning to look at other religions and philosophies for the truth and help they contain and help they contain and no longer merely in order to damn them as false or criticize that we conceive to be their errors. But we are still apt to declare that our truth gives us the supreme knowledge. So we have to particularly even with Mother and Shurbindo, they have come to us for us, that is the path. But if we try to convert others into believing ours is the only path, ours is the only guru or the highest, this is not what Shurabindu and the mother would want us to do. Otherwise it will become a cult. Those who are ready, they will reveal, they will turn. But we can share their joy. That's what we can do. Okay, so next page, next paragraph. It may therefore be useful in approaching an ancient scripture such as the Veda, Upanishads or Gita, to indicate precisely the spirit in which we approach it. And what exactly we think we may derive from it that is of value to humanity and its future. So there are two things specifically he brings out. What is of value? First of all, there is undoubtedly a truth, one and eternal, which we are seeking, from which all other truth derives. Now this is something which we find in all the scriptures, by and large. The problem is when they say, mine is the only truth, my vision the only vision, my revelation the only revelation, because divine is infinite. To somebody he reveals as impersonal, to another as personal, to a third as the transcendent, to another as the cosmic uh, master, to fifth as the God within the heart of every creature. He may reveal himself in one or the other aspects, what we call as the gods. So this is one error that scriptures make. But one reality and as the ultimate, this is even common sense and logic will tell us. There cannot be many origins and sources. So he says that is the one truth. This is a truth. But where is the problem? But precisely for that reason, it cannot be shut up in a single trenchant formula. Why? Because that truth is infinite. That he will reveal as he comes across. And it is eternal. These two words change everything. It is infinite. So finite minds can receive only that much of it. That the mind is capable of holding. If the mind is narrow, it will turn a vast teaching into something very narrow. So truth is infinite. But different minds will receive it in different ways. That's why there is a famous line in the Vedas which has been the saving grace, ekam sad, 
There is only one truth. But it says further, Vipraha Bahudha Vadanti The wise call by different names. There is one reality. But no finite mind can exhaust it in its entirety. There will be different approaches. People will move towards it differently. And you have to allow for the multiplicity of approaches towards the divine. As long as you don't make it exclusively exclusive, start killing others because you say that mine is the only approach, then there is a problem. You approach in your own way, wonderful. So this is what he is reminding us. It is not likely to be found in its entirety or in all its bearings in any single philosophy or scripture or uttered altogether and forever by any one teacher, thinker, prophet or avatar. So that's why Shurabindo and the Gita itself says, there is a very beautiful uh, word in the Gita, Shabda Brahma Ativartate. The word of the scripture is the Shabda Brahma. It is Brahman. Manifested in the form of word. That's what it means. Shabda Brahma. Because Brahman is absolute. One cannot talk about it. One cannot know about it except through its manifestations. This is the manifestation of that truth in a word or word body. Now, Shabda Brahma, again, manifestation will always be limited. Why? Because... There is always, for instance, Shurabindu will always be above and beyond all that he has written. Because there is in him so much more, which we don't know, the unmanifest. So this is the first part. Second is that it should be used for transcending eventually the word body and to enter into the reality. So Shabda Brahmati Vardade, you must transcend all scriptures written or spoken. But tra- for transcendence, scripture shows us the way. Scripture is not meant to chain us to a scripture. It is meant to free us from ignorance and eventually from the scripture itself. That's the beauty of a scripture. Sanchyobindu also reminds us in synthesis of yoga that the sadhak of this yoga is not a follower of one book or that book or this book or many books. He is a follower of the infinite. So at some point, one has to transcend. Know that this is so helpful, so beautiful. But one has to go to the reality which the scripture represents. Secondly, few lines below. Secondly, this truth, though it is one and eternal, expresses itself in time and through the mind of man. Therefore, every scripture must necessarily contain two elements. One temporary, perishable. Do this, don't do this, temporary. So there will be a scripture which will say, you know, wake up in the morning at 3 o'clock. Now, you know, if you don't have this kind of a lightning arrangement, you wake up, we have grown up like that in our families, we like wake up in the morning at 4 o'clock. Apart from the fact that it's a Brahma Mort. But there was a practical problem. (laughs) Practical problem was after 5 or 6 sunset, you will have only kerosene lamps. So you have to finish everything in the morning. So it was given as a scriptural injunction. Or for that matter, before the days when sanitary pads were there, women were told that during periods, don't enter into a temple. Don't go outside. It was not only temple, it was don't go outside. 
Now, it was a simple hygienic measure. They had to use a cloth and you know, it could get easily contaminated. Leaving aside the occult dimension, we are not entering into it. But it was a temporal measure. But not now. Today you can't say that. When people ask the mother, Mother, can we play sports when we have periods? Why not? Can we come to meet you? She says, why not? And then she says, these were rules of hygiene. Many of them were invent, given during a certain time because of these um, conditions in which we were living. But now, with like women covering their head, either in a body gear or a head gear, because you were living with barbaric people, there was no law, somebody could pick up, make you a slave, all kinds of things were there. So it was a kind of defense mechanism. But today, no, a woman can be like Durga. She is emancipated from this. So today, if you make this custom, you are outdated. There was a time when men had could marry more than one, two, God knows how many women. Because it was a necessity that somebody has to protect. Especially in times of war when many men are dead and gone. So there has to be, few men are left. And men were strong, women were socially, uh, so they could marry. But if you do it today, <laughs> the second woman is enough to pull all your hairs. Okay, so the times have changed. You can't make that as a rule of life. Now, love is different, but I am speaking about marriage, how, how it was there. So, when you do that, then you are actually not understanding the truth of his scripture. You are just following the temporal aspects. So, there are temporal elements belonging to the ideas of the period and country in which it was produced. This is very important because particularly in the Indian setting, so there are scriptures which have grown up which are native to the soil. And that is something very important that we often forget. So it carries its own charm and beauty and you can connect it and relate with it. So there are scriptures which are born in a certain country and they carry its own charm. It's a flower, like different flowers in different countries. And even the same flower you will see it gives a different variety and a different shade. So it's important to remember it. The other eternal and imperishable and applicable in all ages and countries. So this is where Shubindo makes it very clear. And he says that therefore, makes it very clear, it is not so important for us to see what was the meaning that people of that age gave to the Gita. 4500 years, Mahabharata War, B.C. As far as I remember. But at least 5,000 years if you take it. Now, people at that point of time understood in a certain way. But he says, what is important is today, what are the truths we can derive from it for our everyday life. Making it very contextual. And then he says that, you know, there have been various kinds of interpretations of the Gita. Monism, dualism, qualified monism, all kinds of things. He says, that's not what is necessary. That's for an intellectual debate. So for us, what is important? Page 10, last passage, or second last passage. We of the coming days stand at the head of a new age of development, which must lead to such a new and larger synthesis. So the Gita has a synthesis, synthetic element, which we have spoken about. 
all the different paths, different approaches, Sri Krishna brings together. But time has changed since then. New discoveries have come. You have to take into account all that. New equations have formed. It's no more a Mahabharat. Today if there is a war, it will be a Mahavishwa Yudh. Today we have so many countries with nuclear weapons. The times have changed completely. Geopolitical alignments. It's no more one state combining with another to give birth to a nation. Nation is already born. Now there are different nations. So he reminds us, We are not called upon to be orthodox Vedantins of any of the three schools. That is Jnana, Karma and Bhakti Yoga. So Gita is a Vedantic scripture. Or Advaita, Dvaita and Daita, Daita. The different schools of Vedanta. Or Tantrics. Or to adhere to one of the atheistic religions of the past. Or to entrench ourselves within the four corners of the teaching of the Gita. Makes it very clear. That would be to limit ourselves and to attempt to create a spiritual life out of the being, knowledge and nature of others, of the men of the past, instead of building it out of our own being and potentialities. So we can't imagine nowadays that we'll go with a Dhanush band and you know, start going to the war saying, no Arjuna used it. Or with a Kirpan and say, my ancestors used it. That would be foolish. So times have evolved in every way and we have to understand the changing times. A mass of new material is flowing into us. We have not only to assimilate the influences of the great theistic religions of India and of the world and a recovered sense of the meaning of Buddhism. So you see, there are two great religions, three great religions which have come subsequent to the Gita. You have to take into account Buddhism, Christianity and uh, of course, Sikhism also and Islam, they have come out of ultimately. But of course, Sikhism is lineage of Sanatana Dharma. But these are three. Um, Buddhism is also a lineage in a way of Sanatana Dharma. It speaks of many fundamental truths which are the same. But they have had a great impact on mankind. Today's Arjun, if he has to ask questions, he will ask questions based on all this knowledge. So, you have to take into account all this. But to take full account of the potent though limited revelations of modern knowledge and seeking and beyond that the remote and dateless past which seemed to be dead is returning upon us with an effulgence of many luminous secrets long lost to the consciousness of mankind but now breaking out again from behind the veil. So today if you tell a child or a youngster you know what is there to be you know the soul takes birth in different bodies. Arjun never asked this question. He never questioned it. But today's children are bound to ask, who has seen the soul? Where is the soul? Body is the end. Though Sri Krishna has given that logic also. <laughs> Body is the end, don't have to grieve. But nevertheless, lot of things, modern science on one side has done a line of research which points towards rebirth. On the other side, it proves there is nothing apart from the body. All this has to be taken into account. But just as the past synthesis have taken those which preceded them for their starting point, so also must that of the future to be on firm ground proceed from what the great bodies of realized spiritual thought and experience in the past have given. Among them the Gita takes a most important place. 
So that is the important, that is the new thing about essays on the Gita, though Shobindu would develop it much more in other works, especially the life divine, where he takes the different standpoints. And as far as yoga, the synthesis of yoga, and with the mothers coming completely. So that's something very unique. But yet in the Gita, he suddenly opens those doors towards which Sri Krishna points. There are places where he points towards an integral truth. Shri Krishna touches the door of the supermind, then returns back as if reminding himself, I have to come and share window and do this. So we see that Shri Krishna leads Arjun at some point to that point. But this is not the time for that revelation. And we'll see as we go along. So this essay on the Gita, Shri brings in the aspect of integral knowledge and the integral yoga and turns it into something which is very useful and beneficial for all of us. Shobindo spoke of two great things which can prepare the sadhak for integral yoga, his yoga. One is Vedanta, good grounding in Vedanta. And the second is the Gita. Because Shobindo's yoga is through karma. And last passage, our object then in studying the Gita will not be a scholastic or academical scrutiny of its thought. I'm not going to do that sloka by sloka, thus said Arjuna, thus said Krishna. Nor to place its philosophy in the history of metaphysical speculation. Is it Dvaita, is it Advaita? This is not to be done. Nor shall we deal with it in the manner of the analytical dialectician. We approach it for help and light, just as the Gita was born. Arjuna approaches Sri Krishna for help and light. That's all. He doesn't say that which school of philosophy do you belong. So he doesn't say. But in the process, Sri Krishna reveals many things. He says, what should be our approach? We approach it for help and light and our aim must be to distinguish its essential and living message. That in it, in it on which humanity has to seize for its perfection and its highest spiritual welfare. So it will form a base, a wonderful base for or rather, it will take us automatically into Shabindu's Yoga through a wide door of karma and all the choices it involves. So, I think we'll stop here today.